Broadcasting from an undisclosed location, you are about to join the leader of the unofficial resistance, the rebel himself, Brian Lilly. This is the Brian Lilly Podcast. A week is a long time in politics, and change is the key word. Hello, welcome to the podcast. I'm Brian Lilly. We've got David's on the show today. The Daves I know are dropping by. David Coletto of Abacus Polling, Abacus Data, will be dropping by with a look at the numbers of the Canadian political landscape. And David Aiken, who you used to see on TV with me on Sun News. Well, where is he now? What's he doing? And what does he think of what's happening in Canadian federal politics? That is coming up later on in the program. But first, and because those interviews are long, I'm not going to ramble too long at the beginning here, but let me just say about change. Change is the key word right now. I mean, a little while ago, we were talking about the Liberals forming the government. I was on the record several times as saying that I think Justin Trudeau would be the next Prime Minister of Canada. And now he's in third place. Tom Mulcair has moved up to first. Trudeau has become a, uh, a policy wonk, putting out policy at every turn. The Conservatives are holding their own, but the NDP are riding way up top. And then you look south of the border and what's happening there. And Donald Trump drawing thousands of people out to a rally in Arizona, even as the media attack him relentlessly over his comments about illegal immigrants and Mexicans. It looks like he's hit a nerve with at least part of the population. I'm going to be getting into that later on in the week on the rebel.media just forming my thoughts on what I think is happening, why I think it's happening. And I know that I'm not popular with some people when I say I don't like the idea of President Donald Trump. I don't think he's overly conservative, but he's hitting a nerve with some people. And it'll be interesting to see if it holds, or is this a flash in the pan? Is this a short-term thing? Those are the same questions that we have to ask about Mulcair, Trudeau, and Harper, though. Are the trends that we're seeing in terms of public opinion going to solidify? Does the campaign matter? We are just shy, are just under 100 days until Election Day here in Canada. 100 days. Now, the official writ period will be closer to, I'm thinking, 45 to 50 days. I think that they're going to call before Labor Day. But the official campaign and the actual campaign are very different. The actual campaign is already underway. Like I said, we've got the two Daves on the program today, and I hope you're going to enjoy the conversations because they were so good that I went longer than I normally would. And especially with Aiken, because we just sat down, grabbed a drink in my office in, uh, in Ottawa, a couple blocks from Parliament Hill, and chatted like uh, two old colleagues who hadn't seen each other in a while, which is exactly what we are. So rather than have me continue to pontificate, let's turn it over to the conversation with David Aiken. Lots of you will remember uh, my next guest from Days at Sun News, maybe even before that, CTV and Post Media. And he's been kicking around an awful lot of places the last several years. David Aiken, host of The Daily Brief. Yes, the Daily Brief, and then Battleground, Battleground, and then Road to the White House. All these, all your favorites on Sun News Network, and uh, you know, you were of course there. Uh, how many live election night broadcasts did we oh, do? We man. must have done a dozen at least. So um, you know, tons. 
I keep running into people that don't know where we've all landed. And Same obviously people that are listening know yes. where I've landed, but fill them in on where you landed. You used to be the Parliamentary Bureau Chief for Sun Media. And now I'm the Parliamentary Bureau Chief for Sun Media. <laughs> I know. So, of course, Sun News and the Sun Newspapers used to be owned by Quebecor, the Montreal-based mm-hmm. company, the one that Pierre-Carl Peladeau owns. And Pierre-Carl Peladeau sold all his newspapers to Post Media. Well, all the English ones. All the English ones. He didn't That's sell his French ones. Good point. Uh, and, of course, uh, and decided to get out of the TV business altogether, and that's where Sun News Network uh, met its fate. So when Post Media completed its acquisition of the Sun Media Papers, it said, wait a minute, we need a parliamentary bureau chief uh, uh, because there was we, none. We were all we were let all, go. All let go uh, when Sun News Network shut down. And, and the weird thing that to explain to people, the, you and I were both employees of the Sun News Network, of mm-hmm. the television operation. Yeah. But we provided columns and all sorts of writing for all the newspapers. They didn't really pay for any of that, but we did it in any event. Um, so you're right. When Sun News Network shut down, we were all out of a job. But for the newspapers, they were out of any copy coming out of Ottawa, out of the bureau that we both worked in, uh, us and all our reporters. So when, as I say, when Post Media took it over, they said, well, we still need some copy for our Sun papers. And so they hired me to be their parliamentary bureau chief. It's a grand title, but I'm the bureau chief and chief bottle washer. There's just yeah, me. Well, it, it used to be a bureau of, as you know, Brian, of lots of people, reporters, camera people. Now it's just a Sun Media Bureau in Ottawa. At it, this point, it's, it's just pretty me. much you. Yeah. It's just me. I now mean, I'm it, in with the Post Media folks. My friends, the Ottawa Citizen is a Post Media paper and the Ottawa Sun is the Sun paper, but we're both owned by the same uh, corporate parent, Post Media. So we still compete. We want to have scoops in the Ottawa Sun, and the citizen want to have scoops that the other guy doesn't have. So it's a, it's so, we're still but, working that okay. out. Okay, and you know what? We're going to do an interview, and we'll post that online as well, and we'll get into all of that and 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 more of. It's the, real the media party stuff, stuff, my friend. It's good yeah. media party stuff, absolutely. Well, you know, it's it, people people are interested in how the business works, right? Especially as it shrinks and. And they're wondering, where does everything come from? But you, you started out with, where did all your Sun News Network folks go and the kind of content you liked on Sun News Network? I've got those questions. Where's Brian at? Where's Ezra at? Where's Michael at? Um, you've got those sort of things. And, you know, it's people are still doing a lot of the stuff they were doing on the network. They're just, just doing, doing it, it in different places. All right. So let's start. You, you've, you've got a column coming out that I want to ask you about. It's coming out on the weekend. Uh, but you had one. Thursday, Friday, on Eve Adams. I think it came out Thursday night. uh, Yeah, Thursday night, yeah. So Eve Adams and and the grand experiment of of her becoming a liberal and trying to take down Joe Oliver. Uh, This is an ongoing soap opera with Eve Adams. First off, I can't believe that the liberals took her. Yeah. Uh, But there's an ongoing soap opera with now allegations that she may even have been paying for people's memberships. She may have, and, and who actually, I can't, I don't even know if under the rules of the liberals, whether that's allowed or not allowed, but let's say she was, uh, that's going to be a problem because of this, the nomination meeting, the mm-hmm. place where you have to go vote for the liberal candidate in Eglinton Lawrence is on Sunday, July the 26th, the last Sunday of July. It's going to be a beautiful day, presumably, or who knows what, but it's a Sunday in July. People will be at the cottage. If I paid for my membership myself, I likely have more of an interest in showing mm-hmm. up and voting. Or, or if, you know, even if she didn't pay for 
membership. She she was having barbecues with toy giveaways for parents if you could drop hey, by to buy a membership. You, you got to so do what you got to do to win. Those people maybe maybe they just wanted the really nice toy and will they it was show worth up to vote dollars? Right now. Now, since you – know, and just to give you the basic uh, sort of news nugget in that story that I published was the deadline to sign people up to vote came and went last Wednesday. She they, has more people. Right. So a party source tells me that here's the scorecard. It's, it's Ave Adams and another guy, a guy named Marco Mendocino, who is a uh, local – you know, he's been a writing worker for a long time, but obviously more lower profile. Lawyer? So, a lawyer. He was actually the, the prosecutor of the Toronto uh, Toronto 18. Remember mm-hmm. those terrorists? Yep. This is a guy who put terrorists in jail. I mean, probably a guy that Trudeau would kind of like to have on his team. Instead, he make it Eve Adams. All right, so Adams sold about 2,800 memberships, uh, we understand. Mendocino has about 1,800. If all of those people show up to vote, it looks like Adams could be the nominee to face off against uh, Joe Oliver, who is the sitting conservative finance minister uh, from that riding. Um, so so they've got these memberships. Uh, I've since heard there could be about 6,000 total voters because there be existing party members mm-hmm. ahead of time. Who knows? The key is really going to be, get can you get these people to show up on a Sunday in July to a high school in downtown Toronto uh, to actually cast a ballot? I'm going to be there. I can't wait. I think it's going to be a fun uh, nomination meeting. It's going to be, you know, this is sort of big state politics because it's really divided the liberal family in that part in, in Toronto. You've got Bob Ray out campaigning with Mendocino. You've got the local MPP, remember provincial ridings, map on to yep. federal ridings. In Ontario, they got him, Mike Cole, who called, he's the liberal MPP for this area. He called Adams' move from the Conservatives to the Liberals preposterous, mm-hmm. and and you know he's going to work against trying to get her elected. So the Liberal establishment. So what establishment happens if is, she wins? You're going to have a lot of annoyed Liberals. And I watched this in in yep. my hometown in Hamilton. Sheila Copps, longtime MP, goes to battle with Tony Valeri. Valeri won one election, but after that, there were a pile of Liberals that walked and away. Valeri they, was Paul Martin's guy, right? They, Remember yeah, that? But they were so upset at the way Copps had been treated mm-hmm. that party workers all of a sudden are sitting on their hands. And that's that, dangerous for you in an election. That is, and, and it's so dangerous that I'm talking to conservatives who have been working that running. Put this in context. Only twice in Canadian history, twice, has a sitting finance minister lost in a general election. The last one was 93. It was uh, Gilles Loisel, who was Kim Campbell's finance minister up in Quebec. The other one, the guy who was Mackenzie King's finance minister in 1930, he lost to, King lost to R.B. Bennett, and, you know, fortunate not to be in power when the Depression's <laughs> yeah. coming in. So only twice has a sitting finance minister ever lost. And Oliver was about to be the third one. And he still may yet be the third one uh, to, to have that sort of uh, distinction. Before the Eve Adams showed up, the polling that had been done by the party, the Conservative Party, had Oliver seven, eight points back of generic liberal. So this was, everybody knew, this was going to be tough to get Joe reelected. This is conservatives. Yeah. Now they're doing polling. Joe Oliver versus generic liberal. Joe Oliver, he's two or three points down. Joe Oliver versus Eve Adams. Joe Oliver wins. That's what conservatives who are working in the riding are telling me, that Adams is not the candidate to win this for the liberals. A donkey named liberal wins this for the liberals. So... This is sort of be careful what you wish for. Eve Adams, this is what I'm told by her and by uh, people around Trudeau, 
When she crossed the floor, she picked this writing. She said, I'm going to prove to you I'm a liberal, and I'm going to prove it but by picking out I, the giant slayer. That's what she says. She, she, may, she may end up uh, being the giant slayer, but she'll never convince me that she's a liberal. And, and I think that's the problem that a lot of liberals would have with her as Anybody well. who's been watching politics for the last three years knows she has been one of the most fierce and loyal Harper foot soldiers until Harper said, you can't run for my party anymore because you broke a bunch of rules when you tried to win a nomination fight yeah. in Oakville. And you, as you soon as she got... The, do these fights clean or don't do them at all? Meanwhile, I mean, Trudeau has promised open and fair nominations. He hasn't said, he hasn't appointed Eve Adams, so she still has to win it. But he did a press conference with Eve Adams right beside her. And then sent yeah. some of his people down to work mm-hmm. the, the nomination This for is her. the other right. interesting thing for the bigger picture in Toronto. Toronto was, as you know, you know, the l- last liberal fortress in the country. Until the last election, all of a sudden, new Democrats are winning in downtown Toronto. In the beaches, Matthew Kelway, uh, Andrew Cash in uh, Davenport. Uh, now Toronto Centre, uh, could be Linda McQuaig, who takes that riding uh, you know, away from uh, the Liberals. So the Liberals are under threat in the downtown. And so they've got that that they've got to worry about. They then say, oh, here comes Eve Adams and Eglinton Lawrence. And you're right, they take some of their top... Pr- organizers to help her out. And, for example, you've got the two Don Valleys, Don Valley West and East. John Carmichael and Don Valley West is the conservative incumbent. He thought he was going to lose. He's up against Rob Oliphant. He used mm-hmm. to be the liberal MP for there. Because all these liberal resources are now focused on supporting Adams, John Carmichael is going, I got a chance now. So the liberals, it's not just that they may lose Eglinton Lawrence, they may lose Don Valley West. They may lose Don Valley East so- because they've decided to put resources into a riding that is going to be now very hard for them to win, but was a slam dunk win for them had Eve not shown up. Do you remember the uh, the dog and pony show that the New Democrats did for us before the last election? They came into the Sun News oh, oh, offices. Oh, yeah. Tell us, laid out how they were going to... And laid out how, what they... Path to victory kind of thing. And, yeah. and, and it was a pitch to that they did to all the major media organizations mm-hmm. and said, you've got to be on our campaign, plane, train, automobile. Yep. And, one and, of the and things it costs they just said, ten thousand bucks a week to do that. So that's yeah. why they're trying to sell us to do that. Yeah. And, and a lot of a lot of media places trying to cut costs had thought, well, maybe we won't go on with the NDP. We were there, Sun News, every and, single week. And the NDP, uh, Brad Levine and Kathleen Monk, showed up and said, the Conservatives are going to slice away at the Liberals on the outskirts of Toronto, and we are going to slice them like sausage from the inside. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And it worked. And they did. And it might be working again. And it did. And, and it's it, the, this, I mean, for the big election picture, this is one I think the stories that really we ought to pay more attention to as political journalists. And it's this. Stephen Harper has been through a few of these campaigns. And not only Harper, but so is his war room, Jenny Byrne, the whole gang that is around her uh, in the war room. They've done these elections before. They have experience. They know when something's really turtling, when to fix. On the NDP side, yes, it's Thomas Mulcair's first campaign as a leader. But the team around him, it's the same team that's been through this four or five times at Leighton. It's Brad Levine. It's Ann McGrath. On the Trudeau side, on the liberal side, it's all new for Trudeau. It's all new for his war room chief, Katie Telford. It's all new for the gang around him on a national level. Mm-hmm. They, some of them have experience running uh, uh, provincial campaigns. I think Katie was in on the Dion campaign way back on that one. But they're kind of new at this. And so the two veteran campaigners, the NDP and the Conservatives, I think have that little extra advantage because 
they sort of have, they've seen how this can unfold and they know when, when to spot things, when to react, how to deal with the media, how to deal with us. So on that sense, I'd give them a little advantage going into it. Not to say that the liberals couldn't compete and win and the, the polls are all pretty close. But experience counts in this game. I didn't want to spend the whole time talking about uh, Eve Adams and, and Dimitri Soudas, but I have to, it's related to that. And it was this story a little while ago trying to take down Tom Mulcair. It was the recycled McLean's article. Oh, right, yeah, that, that he was being yeah. recruited to run for that, Harper at some point. You know, it was breaking news that we first heard in 2007 and then 2011 and then 2012 and then again in 2015. Mm-hmm. To me, that... You know, and I don't know how Patrick can got this and got these details that both conservatives and new Democrats later come out and said, no, that's that's not true. That's not how it went. But to me, it looked like a liberal plant job, whether it was open or what have you. I mean, the only named source was Dimitri Soudis, who at who that is now point, a liberal, but was a conservative. Yeah. And in 2007 was a press secretary, mainly dealing with the French media. Mm-hmm. Um, so, yeah, he knew Quebec, but. What was your take on on that? I, I, I thought it was a clumsy attempt by the liberals to take down Mulcair. Uh, yeah, it's, it seemed to me, and, 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 and Patrick Ann, in his story, he did have a paragraph, which I'm going to applaud him for, in which he said, the Conservative Party did not approach me about this story. No Conservative candidate did. Uh, you know, he, he, he sketched out that it wasn't coming from the Conservatives, this. Hmm. And, of course, first thing in my head was, well, you didn't say it didn't come from a liberal here, which I don't know. And I don't want to challenge mm-hmm. him on revealing his sources or, or revealing whatever it was. But you don't need his really source here because this is a story that got first reported by the Gazette in 2007. Seven. Yeah, it, it was basically Mulcair admitted from the get-go right. that he had talked to all the parties. Yeah, the, the, the Gazette reported it. Uh, everybody reported it in 2008, 2000, in, to in 11. 2012, when he was attempting to win the, uh, Mulcair was attempting to win the NDP leadership and it looked like he was going to. Yeah. Brian Topp and others were throwing that at him. We're all saying he's not a real New Democrat. Yeah. And, yeah so, and, and throughout this whole story, uh, Mulcair's line has been absolutely consistent. He's never, he's been on the record saying, yes, I talk with all parties and I went with NDP, the NDP. And what's, what was funny, the reaction that, that I got online, you may have gotten as, as well, was people going, oh, he's just an opportunist, power hungry money grabber. Okay, well, time out. In 2007, when he became a federal new Democrat in Quebec, mm. think about it, in 2007, if you're really power hungry and you're a Quebecer, you don't join the federal NDP. No. There's there's lots of other options out there. They didn't have a single MP. They didn't have a single MP at the time, and he became the MP. So I think I, I don't think this is going to stick on Mulcair. But yes, because it was the Quebec correspondent for McLean's. If it had been the Vancouver correspondent, I'd be kind of going, well, I don't understand this. But the Quebec correspondent, think about that. Who in Quebec is worried about the rise of Mulcair? Liberals are. Quebec liberals know that they have to tamp down the popularity of that Federalist Party. Liberals are the second most popular Federalist Party in Quebec, and uh, Mulcair is a real threat to them in Quebec, and possibly now in other parts of the country. So was it liberals just trying to remind everybody about this? It seems to me it was. And, and again, I go back to the online reaction. When this story first broke, and then I wrote a blog post sort of deconstructing the media coverage of this over the last five years, all the feedback I got was all liberals. All liberals going, aha, look at that. Mulcair is, he, he would have run for uh, Stephen Gerald, Harper. Gerald Butts was out pushing it online. Uh, but uh, so is he. Rob Silver was. Tons of 
quote, big time liberals, big time, little time, all kinds of liberals were out pushing this around. All the candidates, I've got a Twitter list of every single liberal candidate, and they're all pushing this whole Mulcare story. My Twitter list of conservative candidates, not a peep. They didn't care. It wasn't a big deal. I woke up in the morning, saw it and said, wait a minute, we already knew that. Well, and that was so. the other thing. We, we sort of knew this. There wasn't really much new in the Patrick Hand story beyond the salary figure that Mulcair was alleged to have asked. Mulcair was alleged in the story to have asked for $300,000 a year uh, for some sort of, could have been at the Environment Roundtable, could have been an, as advisor. an advisor. The prime minister of the country at the time makes about 300000 And I'm pretty mm. sure Tom Mulcair thinks a lot of himself. Let's let's not be clear. But I'm pretty sure even he wouldn't have the cojones yeah. to go, I want to get paid as much as the boss gets paid. What, so. do, you, what do you think is going to be the interesting um the interesting ballot question or underlying theme of the campaign that we're not talking about yet i mean is there anything bubbling under the surface to, to justin trudeau's credit what he's been doing every week in the last four weeks he's had a big policy announcement mm -hmm. the big thing on uh, you know his, his dealings with aboriginals this week and we can criticize him and there was a few lines in what he said i thought were complete pandering to the First Nations crowd he was talking to. But, hey, he's come out with some policies on Aboriginals. So we, well, before he, that, he used to be our knock against him was he had no, he policies, had no policies except so, legalized pot. So Exactly. And, and now he's got a lot. He's got, so he's got a 32-point plan on democratic reform. 32 points, <laughs> folks. Not 31, not 33, 32. Uh, he's got one on, you know, uh, of course, on, on the environment. A whole bunch of things. So, so we've been talking a lot about policy because Trudeau has kind of forced everybody's hand with these policy announcements. Good for him. Uh, he wants to be seen as a policy wonk. And he, I guess that they've said that's important. But I don't think at the end of the day, Canadians are really going to vote um, by and large on any particular policy issue. The economy will be important. National security will be important. Yeah, those things. This, I really think, is just straight up leadership. It's straight up. Do you think Mulcair should be the prime minister? Do you think Stephen Harper should be prime minister? Do you like Justin Trudeau as prime minister? The qualities of those individuals, do they seem like they can you know, do they, they embody your aspirations for the country? Do they look like you? Are their families like yours? Do you identify with these people? Can they be good proxies for you on the world stage? It's it's all those intangibles, things that are a little hard to track for pollsters, but pollsters are trying to get around them. But I really think this is the this is the election where we got three with three get for the first time ever, three people who could have a legitimate shot at being prime minister. And I think at the end of the day, it's going to be gut check for t time for people in the voting booth on, you know, who do I want answering yeah. the phone at three in the morning? That Pe kind of question. People uh, people keep saying to me, the, the liberals are out. Um, I don't think so. And I don't think the New Democrats have peaked too early. I do think anything can happen. It's a long campaign. Uh, I think the writ will be dropped August 23rd, I'm going to say. Why, why the middle of August? Why not the beginning? Like, I think it'll be the, right after Labor Day. But so I'm curious, why do you think the middle of August? I, well, I just... Uh, that was just me looking at the Sundays in August. So yeah. August 23rd is a Sunday, August 30th. Um, and But I think they'll go before Labor Day to try and shut the unions down. Was, um, and in, I agree. That's in, why in, the, ter I in terms of third-party spending. They'll try yeah, and shut I'm down with you on that Unifor one. and Engage and all of that. So, you know, the, the first debate August 6th. That's The, the first debate is August 6th. McLean's, and McLean's Yeah. Yeah. Which, you know, I, I love this new debate system. I think it's going to be fascinating. Uh, but... So I, I, I don't think that they'll call it that early, no. officially, but I, I think before Labor Day, they're going to call it. The, the uh, as you know, the rules inside out. Here, here's the, I think we're on the same idea for rationale for calling it 
the writ earlier than just five weeks before October mm-hmm. 9th. I think it'll be after Labor Day uh, for the simple fact of this. No one's listening until Labor Day. So you don't have to worry about shutting down engages in uniforms, uniforms, pardon me, until uh, until we're paying attention again, which is when we come back to work after Labor Day. That's why I think it'll be, the route will be then. But for the same reason, you're going to say the 23rd. Yeah, to begin- I, I, I think it'll go a week or two earlier than Labor okay. Day. So in any event, as a, as because the, the Conservatives, the Prime Minister, it's his call. He gets to decide when the writ is dropped. So a whole bunch of things happen when the writ drops. One, the big one that you just mentioned is third-party advertising. That's it. They, but it doesn't get, go they away get, completely. They but only it's get two hundred thousand. So they get just a, a pittance of money to spend. That they'll be practically invisible. So that shuts down all the big unions, big union money. Uh, here in this town, uh, if you're, it, you, we're we're doing this today in Ottawa. If you listen to any of the the uh, radio stations in Ottawa, you're definitely going to hear ads from the public sector unions beaten up on Stephen Harper from the PSACs, whatever. This is obviously it's a public sector union town. So that's already happening right now. But the right conservatives now. hold most of the seats. They do, but nonetheless, <laughs> the conservatives, they're going to, not on the other side of the river, don't forget. There's not yeah. a lot of them living on the other side of the river. So that shuts that down, right? That's So as, as there's a reason if you're a conservative to go, get this third-party advertising out, and we'll do it as soon as the writ drops. Also, as soon as the writ drops, every dollar you spend as a party, you get 50 cents back. So you and me, the taxpayer, we are now paying for the campaign. So if you got a million dollars in the bank, as the end of the writ drops, you got a million five to go spend because we'll be giving you the money back. That helps every party. Uh, but the conser- because the conservatives have more money than everybody, they have, they have 20 million in the bank, I'm sure, right now. That means they got 30 million they it, can start and spending. Does, doesn't the... the- uh, spending cap and that's the third is thing. determined by the length of the campaign. That's right. So let's say the spending cap in a five-week campaign is $20 million bucks. That's the national spending cap. That's about what it was last time. Yeah. Uh, for every day longer than a five-week campaign, the cap increases by one thirty-seventh. <laughs> of $20 million bucks. So you just work it out. The point being is if you $20 million in a five-week campaign, probably $25 million or so in a six-week campaign and work it up. Now, why is that kind of an issue? And here's this is what I think is kind of interesting. If the conservatives make the calculation that the best they can probably hope for is a minority government, then it's definitely in their interest to have a long campaign they can afford to hit the spending limits with the money they have or can raise or will get rebates for. But the other parties, they will spend the limit, but they'll have to borrow money to, to spend that limit. So you come out of a long campaign, you've got a minority government, and you need some breathing room. You need because some stability. you're in debt. They're in debt. The conservatives could go again the next day because they're the richest party. But you've just forced the NDP and liberals to borrow to get this far, and now they're not really probably ready to dance again for a year at least. And we've seen how effective Harper can be in a minority government playing all the angles when it was, you know, uh, Dion in 2008, when it was, uh, you know, Iggy after that. So so maybe I'm overthinking the thing, but that's a reason to have a longer writ period, maybe not as long as the 23rd, but certainly a bit longer. You get more money back from mm-hmm. the taxpayer. You force the other parties to spend money which they do not have, and that may help you down the road. And you kill all the union advertising. All right. Dave, we're going to wrap it there. But for anybody that wants to hear more inside baseball stuff, uh, we're going to recharge our glasses and do uh, an interview that I'll post separately on who David Aiken is, what makes him tick, how does he look at stories. This is the Brian Lilly uh, podcast. Uh, Do make sure that you subscribe. You can subscribe in iTunes, Stitcher. You can subscribe on SoundCloud. And if you like what you're hearing, share it with your 
friends, your family, Facebook. My Facebook, facebook.com slash Brian Lilly. More to come. Join the resistance. Follow Brian on Facebook, facebook.com slash Brian Lilly. He's hated in official Ottawa, but loved by you. This is the Brian Lilly Podcast. Welcome back to the Brian Lilly Podcast. It's Politic Wonk Edition today. We had David Aiken on earlier, and David and I can get a bit inside baseball. Well, now another one of the Daves I know <laughs> is here, David Coletto. Pollster extraordinaire, Doogie Pollster, we used to call him, and uh, he's out with another poll on the horse race. But there's some, as always, I mean, people, David, welcome to the podcast. People will talk about the the top line numbers, and I want I want you to get into those. But there's always some nugget behind the numbers that's interesting, and that's what I want to get into later uh, on something Aiken was telling me about the the orange blue switchers. Mm-hmm. So, I mean, you've, you've got a, a, an interesting look at p- who will switch between NDP and conservative. Yeah, I mean, I mean, the horse race numbers will only tell you so much four months out from an election campaign. I mean, you just got to look at so many provincial elections in the last few years and a poll two weeks out from, the fi- from voting day told us very little about what might actually happen mm-hmm. on voting days. But it's some of the things underneath, as you said. Um, one of the things we track is... We ask people, are you are you considering, would you consider voting for each of the main four parties, national uh, parties? And what we find is that... Yeah, see, I, I don't count the Greens. You don't count the Greens? <laughs> you well, have, you we have do it to, because you know but what? I don't have but to. We get it all, all the time. I get lots of people yelling at me, why don't you ask about the Greens? So we ask about it, and it's something to track. But when we look at the three main parties in particular, one of the interesting things, we, you know, our, our horse race number shows the NDP ahead. It's a 10th straight national poll from all the different firms that show the NDP ahead. So that's real. But the other thing that we're seeing is the growth in even the, the percentage of Canadians who say they would consider voting NDP. And that's up to 62%. 62% would consider voting yeah. NDP? 62 I haven't seen a similar number for any party that's really since wild. I started uh, doing this. So that's the first thing. And, and what we can do by asking about all three parties is say, okay, how does it break out in terms of how many people, for example, would consider voting for all three parties? Well, that's 15% of the electorate say, I'm, I'm open to conservative, liberal, NDP. Um, you ask, what about conservative, what is the conservative base, that the core that will say, I'm only going to consider yeah. the conservatives? 25? That's about 12%. No, Only 12? It's only 12%. I, I, we'd often talked about parties having different floors, and we used to think the liberals was 30. Obviously, the last election proved that to be incorrect. I guess things have changed. But I always thought the, the conservatives were about 25 would, was their core. Well, the way I would think about it is this. When you ask, when, when people, when the 12% say, I'm only going to consider the conservatives, that's, that's their ultimate core. Okay. That's the hard, hard core that's not going so anywhere. Their, their baseline might still be in that 20, 25, because 25 range. There's about 9% who say they would consider only the liberals and only the conservatives. And another 9%, surprisingly, who would only consider the conservatives okay. And the New Democrats, you put those together, and most of them are voting conservative, you get your, your, your kind of core. What's your top line number right now? Uh, we've seen, I, I, I mean, you said it, 10 polls in a row from different firms, all putting the New Democrats on top. 
You've got them all together kind of as a cluster, though. Yeah, it, it's, it's un- what we described it in our, in our report was unprecedented competitiveness. Five points separates one, two, and three. We've got the New Democrats at 32%, the Conservatives at 29%, the Liberals at 27 So a five-point gap between first and third. Um, this is the second month in a row we've seen that kind of close gap, except the Liberals have uh, fallen to third place and the New Democrats have, have jumped into first. And that's, that's the first time in our tracking since Abacus started five years ago, that we've had the NDP ahead clear of any other party. Um, so yes, the NDP's up. That's a trend that we've seen everywhere. But this is still incredibly okay. competitive. Uh, you know, I used to have worked with a lot of pollsters over the years. And you know that uh, I used to work regularly with uh, John Wright, Daryl Bricker at Ipsos. And John used to, to warn me about paying too close attention to the national numbers. Now, I, I think there's another reason national numbers today don't matter as much. I think there's about six different campaigns, regional campaigns, maybe more. But he used to say, the number to look at is appetite for change. I don't know if you asked that in this poll, but 62% saying they're willing to consider voting NDP tells me there is an appetite for change. Well, we, we ask a, a slightly different question than than's typically asked. And we ask people to pick one of four statements that describes their view about change. One is it's definitely time for a change. Those are the hardcore people who, who you know, all of none, almost none of them are going to vote conservative. There's a, there's a slight variation of that, though, where we say, I'd like change. I think it's time for a change, but it's not that important to me, right? And what's interesting about that group, that represents 24%. The definitely change people are 50. So 75% of Canadians are saying, yeah, change would be okay. And that's not surprising considering Stephen Harper has been around for 10 years, right? You just, mm-hmm. things get old, you, you know, you start to get sick of seeing the guy on TV. But that 24% who say, I'd like it, but it's not important, that's going to be the key group, I think, in this election. And right now, the Conservatives have the support of about a quarter of them. They need more of that group if they're going to win. And we've seen lots of provincial elections in which a large majority of the, the voting population says it's time for a change, and then they reelect. Well, the, the last two Ontario elections um, did not look good for for the Liberals. You know, when you had six, 65% in, in 2011, the one that McGuinty won his big minority, mm-hmm. said they want to change and they still... And it was a big minority. I mean, if, if you're going to win a minority, that's the kind of Missed minority by one to seat, win. Yeah. All right, so... So, yeah, time for change. Let me ask you about this. National numbers, given that you've got such wild differences between how people are voting in Atlantic Canada, how people are voting in Quebec, how people are voting in Ontario, the prairies in BC. Do national numbers tell us much other than a general trend? Uh, no, you're right. <laughs> they don't. They, they mean absolutely nothing except they're easy to report. They're easy mm. for people to consume. And I mean, I think we need to know them and they're a benchmark, but but to me, they're, they're they mean little to in terms of how you calculate the seats in the House of Commons, right? A one two point shift in a national number could mean very little change if certain key regions, like if the NDP went up 10 points in Alberta, for example, that may mean only two or three seat gain for the New Democrats in Alberta because the gap between them and the Conservatives is still large. So, I mean, but you've got the Liberals in Atlantic Canada at 40 percent. They there are only so many seats in Atlantic Canada. The Conservatives in Manitoba, Saskatchewan, and Alberta, 40 to 48 percent. You know, there's only so many more seats they can hold there. You know, what, are they going to knock off the, the one new Democrat in Alberta? Okay, that only takes you so far for both parties. You've got to have 
numbers that are are steady across the board. Yeah, and and I think you know for for your listeners in Atlantic Canada or in Manitoba and Saskatchewan, they often get ignored because we often just focus on the big three. Ontario, Quebec, and British Columbia as, as being races where they're typically more competitive and they've got a lot of seats. Um, for example, in Ontario, I mean, this is the story of, of where we're headed. It's a three. It's basically tied three ways in Ontario. 31, 31 NDP, 31 Conservative, 29 Liberal. Now, even in Ontario, that number is misleading because if you look in Metro Toronto, right, the Conservatives the, the, are less competitive than in a few kilometers to the north in the 905 or to the west or the east. And so even in Ontario, which is a massive province, that provincial number doesn't tell us some regional dynamics that are happening. And for the Liberals and the New Democrats, I mean, either one of them being at 50% in Toronto, again, that's going to impact the number provincially and federally. But there's still only so many seats you can win there. If you're not winning in southwestern and eastern and northern Ontario, well, good luck to you. Yeah. And so, you know, these, as a pollster, I say, well, everyone's interested in the horse race. I put it up on our website. It's the one that gets the most hits all the time. Everyone's obsessed with it. But um, four months out from, a, from, from election day, um, it's probably the least important. Um, it tells us a lot. But the fact that the NDP could rise simply off of, and I believe this, simply off of the Alberta NDP winning on May 5th, I don't think there's much other factors. I mean, whittling away, uh, you know, the questions around Justin Trudeau's readiness for prime minister, the conservatives have done, I think, very effectively has helped the NDP rise. But there, it's, it's remarkable. Um, all the polls done before May 5th and all the polls literally done that week were had a five, six point swing in favor of the NDP and that, that continued to move. So voting behavior, what's driving these people to say, I'm going to vote NDP at this point, I think is still very... Uh, superficial. It, and but, the I mean, campaign is either going to harden it and, and hold people there or completely shift them away. And one of the things our poll found, and I'll just say that, is we asked people another type of question, um, you know, which comes closest to how you, your vote. And only 28% said, I know who I'm voting for, and that's not going to change. Only 28% are sure. Are absolutely sure who they're so, voting for, and it's not moving. So from now until October, we could see another shift in which the conservatives come back although I think that's the come back to around 40%. That's a tough go for them. But you could see big swings uh, in either way between the Liberals and the NDP and a few more points. Hey, if, if Tom Mulcair is, if everyone wakes up and says Tom Mulcair is going to be prime minister, what does that do to, to more conservative liberal voters who maybe don't want that? You know, we always talk about strategic voting on the left. There, there may be there calls are, for strategic voting on the right. There are liberals who hate the New Democrats. So let me ask you about the the blue-orange switchers. I know Aiken's writing about that this weekend. So fill me in on on who these people are. There's, you know, in this part of Ontario, you talk to people about, you know, voters that will flip between New Democrats and Conservatives and they think you're crazy. But there are places across the country where it happens. Yeah, and and what's interesting, and I was talking to David about it, is um, we would assume that they're all or, or they're concentrated in Western Canada. Not the case. In fact, they're not all in the the British Columbia interior. No, in <laughs> fact, there's there's as many proportionately NDP conservative switchers in Ontario as the population. There's just as many here. Okay. And I think one thing we have to keep in mind, and I said this after the 2011 election when we started doing polling, and we showed that the NDP supporters were not as left wing as we assumed. It's because it's a bigger group of people now. The coalition they've put together is larger. When 62% of people will consider voting NDP, there's going to be a lot of more small-c conservative 
blue-collar kind of people in that coalition. And so when you ask them who they are, um, they all agree on a few things, right? There, there's a mix of uh, age groups, gender, region of the country that's pretty proportionate. Um, a little higher union membership, but not significantly higher. What they all agree on is they, most of them like Stephen Harper, most of them like Tom Mulcair, and almost all of them dislike Justin Trudeau. <laughs> and, and, so it, it's, and so for political, political geeks like me, we traditionally don't think of being able to shift between the NDP and the Conservatives. It's, these are two polar opposite parties. But for most voters, um, I think leadership's really important. And so if you really don't think Justin Trudeau can be prime minister and you're open to the other two guys, well, then you're going to consider voting for them. And that's, it, it's less driven about policy. Right. Which is why mm -hmm. the policy folks like like you, Brian, who like, you know, have passionate uh, views about certain issues, maybe don't understand it or, or can't fathom you, for example, ever considering voting NDP. There's a lot of voters who aren't so um, clear on policy side and oh, are the, more open to the leadership styles. Of, we, of we've the got leaders. a guy running for president uh, in the Republicans right now who doesn't have a clue about policy because he's all over the map and once claimed that, you know, he'd like Oprah to be his running mate and he's held every position at least once. So, but I'm going to get in trouble. He because can afford, he can afford to, to hold have, those positions. He can buy each yes, of those positions. Saying. That's because any chance I get, I stay at a Trump hotel and they're very nice, <laughs> except in Toronto, too expensive. Um, if you were to, to be a betting man right now, I, I'm guessing that you would say too close to call. Well, uh, yeah, I think we said it would be a fool's errand to make any predictions. I still believe that despite the challenges the Conservatives face, if we're strictly saying who's going to win more seats, doesn't mean who gets to govern, but who's going to win more seats, I still think they have the advantage uh, headed into the election. But that's because they, they've done it before, they've got the money, they've, they've got the ground game, and they've got the geographic base. But I, I also look at the fundamentals of the NDP right now, and I have to be impressed that they are in they are well positioned. You know, I, I'd been talking to liberals for the last several years who just said uh, they'd love to see Justin win and, and form government, but they didn't see a path to victory because of you need to be strong in all regions of the country or at least enough regions of the country, and they couldn't find that path to victory. The NDP has a plausible one at least at this point. So it's going to be fascinating, and I'm definitely going to be talking to you again. Coletto, always good talking to you. Thanks, Brian. All right, this is the Brian Lilly Podcast. Thanks for listening this week. And, uh, of course, check out Facebook, facebook.com slash Brian Lilly. Subscribe on iTunes or Stitcher or SoundCloud, whatever your poison, and do make sure you share this on your own Facebook page so that your friends and family get to hear about it. Thanks for listening. Remember, I'm on your side. Join the rebellion. Find more Brian Lilly at www.therebel.media.